Whoa. Wait a minute. Huh? Hold up. What? Oh, okay. Did we just lose the f***ing Canucks? You're listening to Halford and Bruff. Left circle, high shot, he scores! JT Miller rips it off the crossbar and in. Winning some games, not having our E-game. Uh, I'm going to take the positive on that right now. And the Sharks take down the Oilers. It just feels like no one's going right now. Yep, great, great observation. Ladies and gentlemen, the weekend. Good morning, Vancouver. 6.01 on a Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. Sweet, sweet Friday. You are listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We are coming to you live from the Kintech Studios in beautiful Fairview Slopes in Vancouver. Jason, good morning. Good morning. Andy, good morning to you. Good morning. Gregory, good morning to you as well. Oh, wow. I like hello, hello. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Accurate Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Accurate dealer today. We are in hour one of the program. Hour one is brought to you by everythingfinancial.com. Financial freedom awaits. Book your introductory meeting today. Visit them on the internet at everythingfinancial.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Now that was a fun night of hockey, everybody. (laughs) And it is being reflected in the Dunbar Lumber text message in basket right now. I believe we have unofficially set a record for most text received pre-show i'm about four or five scrolls deep jason all before 6 a.m this is how much you the listener want to talk about these guys the canucks this is your home of the canucks sportsnet 650 halford and bruff show we got a big one today guest list begins at 6 30 brady henderson seahawks insider from nf from espn not from nfl from espn is going to join us uh seahawks seahawks are six and a half Point favorites at home against the incoming Washington Commanders. I call them the Manders. Yeah, it's all about Geno Smith this week. He's got to keep the he's got to keep the turnovers down. Uh, Seven thirty. Bob the Moj Marjanovic is going to join us for a little CFL preview. West final goes this weekend. It is BC in Winnipeg. Uh, BC a four and a half point road dog there. So we'll talk to Moj about that. Set the table at seven thirty. Eight o'clock. It's Rick Dollywell. We'll look back on another win. For the Vancouver Canucks last night in Ottawa, we'll look ahead to the weekend, Toronto and Montreal. All that's coming up with Dolly at 8. Uh, we are giving away, for the last day this week, a pair of tickets to see WWE SmackDown on Friday, January 5th at Rogers Arena. Now, today's going to be a little different because you can send a What We Learned or Ask Us Anything because it's Ask Us Anything Friday. All you have to do is hashtag it. WWL or AUA, text it to the Dunbar Lumber text line at 650-650 and put a ticket emoji into your text and you will be entered into the contest last time this week to win tickets to see WWE SmackDown in January. Okay, so working in reverse, uh, guest list, 8 o'clock is Dolly Wall, 7.30 is Moj, 6.30 is Brady Henderson. That's what's happening on the program. Laddie, let's tell everybody what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. What happened? I missed all the action because I was... We know how busy your life can be. What happened? You missed that? You missed that? What happened? 
What Happened is brought to you by the BC Construction Safety Alliance, making safety simpler by giving construction companies the best in tools, resources, and safety training. Visit them online at bccsa.ca. Elias Patterson, just the goal and two assists in a game that he didn't even think he played that well in. Vancouver Canucks, fifth straight win last night, 5-2 against Ottawa at the Canadian Tire Centre. Yeah, the Canucks could not have asked for a better start. Brock Besser scored 15 seconds into the game on a play that originally looked like Anton Forsberg had stopped it with his glove. Uh, The problem for Forsberg uh, was that uh, his glove was in the net. It's a tough, tough turn, hard turn. Uh, Just a couple minutes later, Ilya Mikheyev beat Forsberg through the five-hole after taking a pass from Petey, who only had the puck because Kuzmenko made a nice play to disrupt the Sens' breakout. Stay tuned for more Kuzmenko doing uh, good things. Uh, It looked like the Canucks at that point might run away with it. The crowd was restless. I was wondering if there were going to be fire DJ Smith chants. Of course, running away with games. This isn't San Jose. That rarely happens in the NHL. It's true. And predictably, uh, the Senators fought back. Drake Batherson Batherson. beat Casey DeSmith late in the first after a couple of turnovers, it should be said, by Petey and Ian Cole. Then halfway through the second, Artem Zub, back in the lineup, tied it when a shot was inadvertently tipped in by Petey. Oof. Tough who was night. trying to block it. Petey so far, mm, bit of a tough night. Uh, after such a great start, the Canucks were looking sloppy and disorganized, and they were getting outplayed pretty badly by the Sens. But here's the thing about the Canucks this season. They're getting all the bounces. And shortly after Brady Kachuk couldn't manage to shovel the puck into an empty net, I don't know what happened there. It kind of handcuffed him. It went straight across the blue. Yeah. He had straight to go, across the blue. Should have gone to his back end, I guess. I don't know. Didn't go in. And shortly after that, JT Miller got it at the top of the circle and ripped one past Forsberg, whose save percentage must have fallen even further last night, to make it 3-2 to two for the Canucks. Nice play by Ian Cole on that goal to get that quick counterattack started. He gave it to Phil DiGiuseppe, who dropped it to JT Miller, who mm-hmm. ripped it home. Uh, and the Canucks' good fortune continued in the third when Mikheyev directed a Pedersen wrister past Forsberg with his foot. Credit to Kuzmenko for winning a battle to start that rush. Pedersen, who was bouncing back after a couple of mistakes earlier in the game, uh, made it 5-2. Uh, and he made it 5-2 just two seconds after the Canucks started a power play. Miller won the faceoff back to Hughes, who passed it to Petey for the big one-timer. And that, folks, was the game. Let's hear now from Elias Pettersson post-game with Canucks reporter Kate Pettersson. Hey, a Pedersen Pedersen. Uh, it was interesting that, you know, usually these walk-off interviews, they're kind of paint-by-numbers. They're not really in-depth or anything. But I did like what Petey had to say here because he acknowledged, even though he had three points to move him into the NHL scoring lead, he still wasn't satisfied. This is Pedersen post-game, 5-2 win over Ottawa. Elias, good teams find ways to win. What do you take from this one? Uh, yeah, the win. I don't think it's the best effort from us. Uh, I think... My line, uh, especially me, I wasn't having my best night, but uh, turning too many pucks overs and just playing a little soft, but uh, happy with a win, find a way to win. What was the message heading into the third, knowing that you needed a big effort there to get it done? Uh, we just talked about wanting a good 20 minutes, uh, and that's, I think, we did. We um, defended well in the last one uh, or last period, and uh, yeah, happy with a win. 
that final goal on the power play off the draw, the one-timer. Is that something you drew up? Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about it. Um, if Miller wins it clean like it did, then, then yeah, it was uh, Quinn gave him a good pass, so it's just try shoot as hard as I could. Thanks, Leas. Thank you. All right, here's the plan, guys. Uh, you win the faceoff, you, you get back to Quinn, and then Quinn passes to me, and I blast it home. All, All right, right. break. Impor- Let's impor- go. <laughs> the important part is you hit a 100-mile-an-hour slap shot. Can we draw that up? Yeah. Can we do that? So the Canucks did play better as the game progressed. They had a really good start, and I would say a really good finish. The middle part wasn't very good, and uh, JT Miller said, you know, we weren't at our best. Uh, I didn't hear what Rick Tockett had to say, but I'm sure it was similar. Um Everyone's takeaway was almost identical. We weren't at our best. We didn't play great. We made some mistakes, but we still won the game. Mm-hmm. Now, part of it is kind of what you were alluding to. They're not even alluding to, just straight out saying, is that they are, they're getting a lot of bounces right now. Everything is going their way. It's funny because we'll get to the Edmonton story in a sec because Edmonton is the polar opposite of that. Uh, Evander Kane actually had you know some pretty good insight yesterday talking about it's not so much that we're making a ton of mistakes, but every time we make one, mm-hmm. 100% of the time, it ends up in the back of the net. With yeah. the Canucks right now, so many things are breaking their way. Like the Forsberg save, and I'll give him credit for making a pretty nice save, even though he didn't really make a save. Um, you know, those are instances of a few inches where it goes one way or the other, and it really profoundly dictates the game, right? Because, yeah. I mean, you talk about what do you want to do on the road? Well, let's tick all the cliche boxes. One, get off to a quick start. Well, Brock Besser scored the fastest goal <laughs> to start a game in the NHL this season, right? But a fortunate one, because had that been a matter of inches, it's out of the net and not in. Yeah. So there is an element of this of the Canucks getting their bounces, but there's also an element of, hey, look, when we get gifted these opportunities, we have to do something with them. And that's where the good team and good players part of this comes in. Uh, we should mention that Casey DeSmith did get the start mm-hmm. yesterday. And I think talk has suggested that he could get two of the three games on this road trip. In fact, I suppose it's likely now because, so. because the Canucks play back-to-back Saturday and Sunday. Demko gets the start on Saturday. DeSmith back in there for Montreal. I liked the call. I thought it was great. The Smith revenge game, of course, his old team. Yeah, against, yeah. against Montreal. He just hates those guys, right? Yeah. I wonder what kind of video tribute they're going to give him. <laughs> um, so things are uh, looking pretty good right now for the Canucks. But the whole, like, are they going to regress question is still out there. And it's a fair question to ask, right? Like, you know. Oh, hold on. Well, hold on hold a sec. On, like, I was, I was actually thinking about this uh, the other day. You know how, um, well, you might not, but you know how uh, we've been talking a lot about the economy and how the Bank of Canada and, you know, central banks around the world are like, we want a soft landing. Like, that's what they're trying to do with the economy, right? We okay. want, you always hear that. We want to, we want the economy to have a soft landing. We don't want to have a crash. So we're going to have to be careful with, our policies, et cetera. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of discomfort, but we want the soft landing. We don't want like an economic crisis. Sure. Crises that's, are bad. That's crisis what I'm hoping. Did, did you, does, does that make any sense at all to you? I not, I'm know, following not at all. It. Are you sense. following it? I'm, 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 no I'm having the Lenny face right yeah. now. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah like, like that's what the Canucks, for, for regression, that's what we're all hoping for. Like if there is regression, it's not like a disastrous 
crash, it's right? A soft regression. It's a soft a regression, soft, peaceful and regression. you know, maybe not everything is going their way, and maybe God forbid they lose a few games here and there. Um, but for the most part, they're able to maintain the good things that they're doing. And I would say that's that's what I predict. Like, unless there's a horrific injury or two to the Vancouver Canucks, knock on wood, mm-hmm. like I don't expect a massive crash because I think they've got so many good players. Like they have a lot of elite players and, you know, I suppose it's happening to the Edmonton Oilers right now and I suppose it has happened to the Canucks, but I think it's unlikely that there's this massive reverse, this massive crash. There will be regression. They are not going to win at this rate for the rest of the season. Otherwise, they'd be the greatest regular season team in NHL history. And they're not, right? Everyone knows, like, there's imperfections to this roster. But right now, we are enjoying their start. They are they, they are banking points and that's really important because when the regression comes and hopefully it's a soft regression not a hard regression they'll still be in a good spot yeah like i don't i get that this conversation is out there but to me it's almost like comical that people are having it with the passion and fire that they are it happens every year though with a team it happens every that's every fine. year with the team. That's fine, but we can block out the outside noise and look at this and give kudos to the group for doing what every team in the NHL needs to do throughout the course of an 82-game season. Find a stretch where you go on a heater and you win multiple games, like how the Canucks have won five in a row, mm-hmm. and, you, and you said it, the only thing that matters right now is banking points. That's it. That's all that matters. Well, no, more than that matters. How they play matters. I'm sure the Canucks, after that game last night in Ottawa, were like, look, guys, if we continue to play like this, we won't keep getting the results. Right now, we're getting some bounces. We're getting some results. Our finishing is unbelievable. They didn't have many shots on Anton Forsberg last night. They scored five goals, right? Right. Like They can't expect that to keep happening. And how many times times have we seen winning streaks end and then a losing streak starts? You You win your last few. And you don't maybe don't deserve them, and then and then you go on a losing streak, right? Yeah, That's you, what they want to avoid, they, and they also want to just keep getting better. Yeah, you just explained regression essentially. Is that they're not always going to play as well as they've played. The issue is, can you manufacture points, and can you just keep your head above water when you go through the bad times and the down times, mm-hmm. right? Can you not have a set go oh five and two instead go? Three, three, and one, or you know what I mean? Like, find a way to manufacture and generate results. And good, and good goaltending is always the key to that, right? Right. Good, good goaltending is always the key to avoiding these long losing streaks. And I think what you're seeing in Edmonton right now is there is a goaltending issue. The Oilers keep out shooting these teams, and they keep losing. Now, some of it, a lot of it, is also on the players because. When you're chasing games, and the others have found themselves chasing games, oftentimes because they don't get goaltending early on, they chase the games, and they're like, oh, my God, the pucks aren't going in for us. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, someone makes a bad pinch, they get too aggressive, and there's a counterattack the other way, and it goes in the net. And is ne- is that not kind of the story from last night in San Edmonton Jose? Is, Edmonton is chasing, 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 and they did it all last night, eventually losing to the San Jose Sharks 3-2 at the SAP Center. A game in which everyone felt Edmonton had to have was also a game in which Edmonton never held a lead. They were either chasing it or tied all night. Same script as always. They fired a bunch of pucks on net. 
They couldn't get enough goals. They gave up bad, untimely goals. They couldn't get a timely save. And now they fall to <laughs> tied with San Jose. Unbelievable. For the fewest points in the NHL. They're not dead last. San Jose is still dead last on the tiebreaker because of points percentage. But there's two teams in the bottom of the NHL standing stuck on five points. It is the San Jose Sharks who have lost two games this year by giving up 10 goals. And a team that many people pick to win the Stanley Cup, the Edmonton Oilers. Emily texts in, what does it say about me that I'm potentially more excited about the Oilers' loss than the Canucks' win? Well, Emily, it says, like, well, you're like all of us, not a not a very good person, not a very good sports fan, but actually a really good great sports, sports fan. fan. You're a great sports fan. Terrible, terrible person. person. Terrible person. Uh, but we're, we're allowed to be terrible people when we're talking about being sports fans. Um, I also think, Emily that that loss to San Jose was far more um, consequential than the Canucks win in Ottawa. Sure. Like, sure like, is it, like, listen, if you're Ken Holland, if you're Ken Holland right now and you're not getting fired, <laughs> I don't know if you can assume that, but let's say you're not. Um, you got to make the move. You got to make, listen, even if you, even if you have to feel like so bad to go to Jay Woodcroft and be like, this this isn't your fault, but it, you're not part of the solution right now. We got to bring in someone who might be part of the solution. You have to do it now. Mm. You you can't wait much longer. Like that has to be the last straw. I'm sorry. It, it, the Oilers have had all these games where like we got to win it. We got to win this one. Right? They've had two against the Vancouver Canucks after that eight one loss to the Canucks. They were like, this is a big one for us. They lost them both. Mm. And then, you know, everyone was looking at that San Jose game and going, you cannot lose that. Like, you absolutely cannot lose. Well, they lost it. Yeah. They need to make a move. And, you know, if, if if Ken Holland isn't talking to another coach right now, he's not doing his job because there's not much else he can do. He put Jack Campbell on waivers, and Jack Campbell, what, we went and got uh, – did, did the Abbotsford Canucks put, put a bunch behind him last night four. too? Right? So – 20 shots. Four he, he's kind of – he needs to do something. Right, they need to switch. They need to make a change, and people say, "Well, don't make a change for the sake of making a change." That's not always true. Yeah. Sometimes you have to make a change for the sake of change, just to change things up and to give a different whatever it so is. The different system, is different attitude, whatever. Because they are blowing a season that they came in. And a lot of people picked them to win the Stanley Cup, and they are near the bottom of the league. They need to do something. So in the aftermath, Jay Woodcroft spent his, almost his entire presser without answering the very obvious question that was looming in the air. And then came Mark Spector. Here we've got the whole back and forth. Last question of the presser where Speck asks Woodcroft about his job security. Here's what it sounded like. Take it away, laddie. It's a lousy question, but I gotta ask it. You're you got a Stanley Cup contender that's in thirty second place here. Are you worried about your job? No, I worry about taking care of my daily business and my daily process and making sure that I give my players something to focus on and concentrate on. No one's happy with where we're at. We all own it. Uh we can be better and that's where my focus is. Shortly thereafter, Mark Spector posted an article on sportsnet.ca talking about how the Oilers are broken and immediate changes need to be made behind the bench. So it's out there. They're swirling. If they weren't swirling before the Sharks game, they are absolutely swirling now. It just seems like 
and here's the thing. No one's really blaming Woodcroft, but they're acknowledging that something's broke. You're not the guy that's going to be able to fix it. That much is evident. Mm -hmm. And even though we think you're a good coach and a smart guy, like you said, sometimes change just has well, to be made. How yes, much of Laddie. it is, is McDavid literally being broken? Like He's not well. If you watched the game yesterday, there was a shorthanded opportunity for the Sharks. He got stripped of the puck. Yeah. He couldn't even race back. Like He's, mm. he's the fastest he's guy in the he's NHL. Yeah, he is not 100%. He did an interview with Spec and Spec asked him about his health, and he said, I'm healthy enough, mm-hmm. right? Which means I'm not 100%. I guess the issue there would be if the house of cards completely collapses when McDavid's not at 100%, what do we really have here? You know, that's kind of a concern. It's like if we don't have Connor playing at his highest elitist level, mm-hmm. what are we as a team? Are we the 31st ranked team in the NHL? Are we basically San Jose in terms of points? Like that's a scary proposition, right? Now, I'll say this. If Ken Holland can go in and fire Jay Woodcroft with a straight face while also being the same guy that gave him Jack Campbell and Stuart Skinner as a goalie tandem, he's got some kind of cojones. Because that is on that is 100% on Holland. The the goaltending tandem. Well, Holland could go in there and be like, listen, I'm getting fired in the end of the season. So, <laughs> so guess who's getting fired before me, Jay? <laughs> but I, I think also what's, what's worth remembering here is, you know how we talk about the Leafs and how you look at them right now and you're kind of like, they they might have just missed their chance. Like they had all those times where they lost in the first round or last year they lost in the second round and it might just be over for them, right? Yeah, they've still got some good players there, but, you know, they've, they've got some contractual issues. Their defense doesn't look good. Obviously, they've spent a lot in terms of draft picks and prospects and maybe it's just over for them. The Oilers don't want to get to that point. With, with this team, and the problem is is they've got dry saddle only for this year and next year, and then uncertainty beyond that. They've got McDavid for this year and two more years after that, and then uncertainty. You can't just wipe out a year. Like, you can't, and that's why I say you got to make a move. you got to do whatever you got to do to salvage this. Zach Hyman's 31, Kane's 32, Nuge is 30. Right? Well, like, yeah, I don't like, think you like, need to, you, we don't need to belabor the point that they, they can't throw away a year. You can't I think away. we do need to belabor that year, right? Like, or the, belabor that point just because people don't like people. There seems to be a, like, well, as long as McDavid, they've got McDavid, they'll be fine. I'm like, no, they've made a lot of bets like Zach Hyman. Again, he's 31. He's got five years left on his deal. New just 30. He's got six more years left on his deal. Darnell Nurse. Oh, my God. I don't know what they're going to do with that. Like he, he was is, the second star. Somebody posted his what his buyout would look like today. <laughs> it's a well, long one. Here's, I mean, what we're ta- when we're talking about the window is that Holland has made a the bunch, window is right now, right. and they're last in the league. Holland's made a bunch of aggressive moves to put them over the top in their window, which again, to reiterate Jason's point, is open right now. Like Duncan Keith, Jack Campbell, all the, the Zach Hyman move, all these moves and all these acquisitions were designed to step on the gas pedal now, which is why you have to consider firing your coach 13 or sorry 12 games into a season like under any other circumstances you'd say you know what we have enough elite level talent to probably get our way out of this even though it's a big hole so we'll just see it through but you can't because you like they need to make the playoffs this year I know people are joking around sending in uh photoshops of an Oilers jersey with Celebrini on the back of it like that's funny but if they go into the draft lottery like heads will roll 
It'll be Woodcroft at some point. It'll be Holland at some point. I'm not sure if you have to entertain the idea of changing up the mix to a certain degree, but there have to be consequences for being this bad with a Stanley Cup contender. Here's a question. Mm-hmm. What's more surprising, the Canucks start or the Oilers start? Oilers start. Yeah. Oilers start. 100%. They're the worst team in the NHL, potentially. Mm-hmm. Like The Canucks are good. And it's great, and they're on a heater, but teams go on heaters. I've, I mean, Edmonton hasn't done this in the McDavid era. They haven't done this. This is the, one of the worst starts of the seasons in franchise history. They're awful. They've won two games. They got bland. They, they, I think maybe the most surprising part in all of this is the hand that Vancouver has played in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the gap in the look at the gap in the standings now between the Vancouver's Canucks and the played Oilers. a big part in all this. Yes, his first two first game eight one. That that's not getting your season off to a great start if you're Edmonton. And the next the next game was like kind of symbolic of how a lot of Oilers games have gone. They've outshot their opponents badly, but their goaltending hasn't been good, and they just, for whatever reason, haven't been able to score like they did last year. Now do the third game, where all of them freaked out and Jay Woodcroft got tossed. Like, Mm -hmm. Vancouver, if this thing goes completely off the rails, the Canucks have played such a massive, massive part in that derailment. And again, look at them right now. The Canucks are on 21 points. The Oilers have five. (laughs) They're 16 points clear of the Oilers. Like, that is that is an unbelievably shocking thing that I really haven't wrapped my head around yet. Uh, Brady Henderson is going to join us next. We're going to preview this Seahawks-Commanders game. Um, the Seahawks need to win this one. Yeah, I'm calling it a must win because Ooh, nice. this is one of their few <laughs> games over the next little while where they're going to be significant favorites. And there are concerns right now with Geno Smith's play and also the play of the defense, which... Looks so promising earlier in the season. Brady Henderson coming up next on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. Yep, great, great observation. Everything Canucks before and after the games. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. on a Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura Dealer. Today, we are in hour one of the program. Brady Henderson, ESPN NFL Nation Seahawks insider, is going to join us here in just a moment. Uh, Hour one is brought to you by everythingfinancial.com. Financial freedom awaits. Book your introductory meeting today. Visit them online at everythingfinancial.com. It is the Seahawks. It is the Manders. Yes, the Manders. Uh, in Seattle on Sunday, Seahawks are six-and-a-half-point favorites. For more on the game, we go now to Brady Henderson from ESPN here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Brady. How are you? Morning, fellas. Happy Friday. How's it going? Uh, happy Friday to you as well. We are well. We're uh, very intrigued by this matchup for a variety of reasons. For me in particular, I'm going to be very curious to see how the Seahawks respond to an absolute butt-whipping last weekend in Baltimore. What was the mood around practice this week in Seattle after that 37-3 to loss? Were things a little bit more demure than usual, or were they able to flush it? You know, not really, and that, that's the thing that I think probably surprises a lot of people. Um, at, at least this is the case with the Seahawks. That you know, I think a lot of people would expect 
the mood to just be dour and, you know, completely uh, just joyless after a loss like that. And granted, that, that may be the case on Mondays. You know, they've got their tell the truth Mondays. And I think those days are pretty harsh because after a loss like that, yeah, you, you get some pretty harsh uh, truths that you've got to confront. Um, we typically don't talk to players on Monday. We just talk to Pete Carroll. And usually as bad as it gets, he, uh, you know, tends to be pretty upbeat. And so I think players will tell you that, you know, by the time they leave the facility on Wednesday and they head into their off day on Tuesday, um, you know, they pretty much they pretty much move on. And you sort of have to do that in the NFL because by the time you get back to the facility on Wednesday, you know, you're starting a new week and you're preparing for a new opponent. So by the time we, you know, started seeing players and observing them and talking to them, uh, it pretty much seemed like business as usual. And Pete Carroll was even – you know, sort of in a playful mood on Wednesday, posed for a picture with uh, Abe Lucas before practice, and he was just sort of bouncing around with his usual energy. Um, if you see players in the locker room, you wouldn't really know a difference between whether they won or lost the previous Sunday. Uh, and that's at least how it is in Seattle's building. So I'm trying to think of all the things that went wrong in Baltimore. Geno Smith, more turnovers did not look good. The running game couldn't get going. Uh, the defense couldn't get off the field. Um, am I missing anything? Because that was an outright um, butt weapon that the Ravens uh, put on the Seahawks. Yeah, no, I think, I think you covered pretty much all of it. Um, but it really was, yeah. And that was the type of loss that... Uh, is pretty discouraging. And, and, you know, we've talked about the different kinds of losses before. That loss that they had versus Cincinnati a few weeks ago, like where they were in it and they just sort of got in their own way and they hung tough with a pretty good quarterback and a pretty good team, like that was not the most discouraging loss. This is, I think, on the opposite end uh, of that spectrum because it, it's one thing to lose to a Baltimore team that, you know, has an MVP front runner in Lamar Jackson and a, maybe the most balanced team in the NFL maybe the best team in the NFL, uh, either them or the Eagles right now. It's one thing to lose to a team like that. It's another thing to get blown out and lose by 34 points. Remember, uh, it was a 34-point loss, which was tied for their second worst of the Pete Carroll era. But remember, I mean, Baltimore was driving the ball, and they ended up taking, I think, three knees uh, at the four-yard line at the very end of that game. And so that easily could have been the worst loss. That easily could have been a 40-point loss, 41-point loss. Um, so, yeah, that was, uh, that was not good. And um, I, I think you're going to see them sort of refocus and you're going to see them play a lot better this week. But that was a game that really makes you wonder about, um, you know, whether they're going to be able to make much noise in the playoffs. I still think they'll get there. And for as bad as that was, you know, they still have, I think, the third best record uh, in the NFC. And one of those teams ahead of them, Detroit, is a team that Seattle beat. So I still think that they're in good shape, but that's the kind of loss, though, that makes you wonder, you know, are they going to be able to really do anything in the playoffs? Well, it's another game that makes a lot of people wonder about Geno Smith and his, you know, short and long-term viability at quarterback. Now, Pete absolutely defended Geno following the loss, but then he also added in that the increased number of turnovers from his QB are a concern. Just how big a concern are they for Pete right now, who hates turnovers like nothing? Yeah, I, I think they are a concern in general, and, uh, and and Smith plays a role in that, to be sure. But, you know, I really just uh, – upon sort of watching the game again and, and really diving into some of the mistakes uh, or some of the turnovers that he's made and just some of the offensive issues they've had as a whole, I really came away thinking that he he wasn't as bad. He wasn't as 
much of the problem as I thought uh, just watching that game Sunday. And really, that's the case, I think, for the last few weeks. And you just got to realize everything that's going on around him between the offensive line, uh, the lack of a, a run game, uh, especially against Baltimore, and, and really just, you know, kind of breaking down some of those plays individually. And, and you know, the first third down play that they have, Jackson Smith and Jigba bobbles the ball and goes out of bounds. Uh, the second one, he gets the pass batted at the line of scrimmage, and I think that happened three or four times in that game. The interception that he throws, you know, that, that looks like just a terrible throw by Smith in real time, and then you, you sort of realize really what happened was there was miscommunication before the snap. Geno changed the uh, – Tyler Lockett was on – didn't get the signal. Jake Bobo's in the slot who's supposed to help him out, uh, didn't relay that signal to him, and then, you know, Lockett ends up running the wrong route, uh, and it goes down as an interception. So – you know, as, as bad as this turnover funk for Geno has been with eight of them over the past four games, I think that play was illustrative of, you know, some of those, it's been kind of a group effort and there's shared blame to go along with that. And, and I think that's why Carroll was so quick to defend Geno postgame and why he doesn't sound like he's anywhere near considering making a quarterback change. How's Geno Smith feeling, though? Like, my my concern is that, obviously the concern is is the turnovers, but it could get worse if he starts hesitating and double clutching because he doesn't have a lot of time in the pocket with the offensive line playing the way it did against the Ravens. And a few times this year, he really hasn't had much time. I remember the game in Cincinnati, he didn't have much time to throw the ball. So I actually do worry a little bit about Geno Smith's confidence. What, what does he have to say about all this? Well, interestingly, You've heard him. We've all heard him, right, after losses and and even in his Thursday press conferences where any time, you know, the conversation comes up about, you know, one of his turnovers or the offensive struggles in general, like he's always the first guy to put it on his shoulders and say, yeah, that's on me. I got to play better. You know, even in situations where it's clear that he's just sort of, you know, he's, he's into captain mode, right, and he's doing that because that's what a quarterback should do, even if it's not necessarily true. And with that in mind, thought it was really interesting yesterday uh he sort of got in in he was a little more in defense mode and and um you know, he was asked about i think just the struggles in the baltimore game and he brought up the third downs and and he made the point that i just made about you know, he even said yeah that first one jackson bobbles it the second one uh it you know the ball got tipped at the line of scrimmage and and he said everybody played a role in that and that was um, he's not wrong uh, by any means, uh, but it was a departure from his usual MO. And I wonder if, you know, maybe some of that is, is he's sort of feeling the pressure and he's hearing the pressure that he's hearing the, you know, murmurs, however faint they may be, uh, that people want Drew Locke in there. Um, and I wonder if he was just sort of tired of that and, and wants to make it known that, yeah, this isn't all on him. And, and you know, maybe you know, Carol has basically said the same thing and maybe he just felt a little more emboldened to, to say that, to be transparent like that. Uh, knowing that Carroll has already come out and basically said the same thing. Uh, how much of a damper um, has been put on our enthusiasm for this defense that looked like it had improved quite a bit compared to last season? Yeah, that was uh, that looked like last season, right? That looked sort of like the Raiders game last year uh, where they couldn't stop the run. Uh, that did not look like they like they have been playing for you know the better part of this season, and so. Um, it, you know, it, it look if it was if they had played great the entire time, I think you could look at this and say maybe it's a one-off. 
I think what's discouraging or, or concerning is that you know they gave up 300 rushing yards, but but really they've sort of been a little leaky uh, run defense wise for the past couple weeks. And I know some of the numbers. It's not like they've give, been giving up 300 yards, but you know some of those long runs. Some of the, the per carry averages have kind of been creeping up there, and they haven't been as stout against the run as they had uh, at the start of the season. The the sort of obvious thing that you would look to there, and, and, and for reasons why, uh, is that they lost Ichina Wosu, who's their best front seven defender, uh, and now they're counting on Daryl Taylor to you know be more of an every down guy or, or a you know early down guy. And I think I think we've all seen enough of him to know that his strength is rushing the passer. It's not being stout against the run, and that was you know part of the thinking there with trading for Leonard Williams, which you know, they were trying to do that before Nuwosu got hurt. But losing Nuwosu, I think you know made you know, made that sort of more urgency to to get that move because they realized that when Taylor's out there, they're just not as stout on the edge against the run. You know, time of possession can sometimes be a little bit of a misleading stat. Sometimes you can lose the time of possession game because you're so efficient on offense that you just score touchdowns really quickly and then the other team gets a chance and they kind of chew up a bunch of clock being useless on offense. But the Seahawks against Cleveland and against Baltimore were dominated in terms of time of possession. And I wonder how much that has to do with a running game that has suddenly disappeared. Um, what has everyone been saying about the running game? Because we were so um, we were so enthusiastic about the two-headed monster that the Seahawks have in the backfield. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point about you know the defense being on the field a lot, and and they obviously play their own role there and, and not being able to get off the field. But you do look to, it, it, you know, it's the offense has been bad enough, and the time of possession has been, um, you know, so stark the past couple of games that you do wonder if in some of those situations maybe they're just tired, and and you know, maybe the offense really could help them out by, uh, you know, not going three and out on every possession, and so. Yeah, I think as far as the run game, it's been back-to-back weeks where Charbonnet and Ken Walker III have only combined for, I think, 13 carries. Um, and, and by the way, you can submit take last week to Old Takes Exposed because I think I said that like I predicted that uh, those two guys would combine for 30 carries um, in the Baltimore game. Which <laughs> well, they couldn't I, I really do that when by... they were down so much, so we'll, we'll give yeah. you a defense there. Yeah, I didn't even get halfway there, so uh, not one of my better predictions there. But I, that was certainly the intent. I know those guys wanted to go in there, and you saw them early in the game. Uh, that was a run-heavy, um, you know, sort of game script or uh, you know, sort of first fifteen play script uh, for those first couple of drives. They were really trying to establish a run, but then you know, you get down by twenty or whatever it was at halftime. You can't run the ball even on the times you did try to run it in the first half, and it was pretty clear that. You know, they sort of had to shift gears there and switch into uh, to pass-heavy mode in order to make up that big deficit. And, uh, yeah, but that was not by design. They went into that game really trying to run the ball, and I think you're going to see them try to do that this week as they continue to try to take pressure off Geno Smith and, and try to set up some of their play-action game, which has really been the by far the best part of their offense this season. So this Washington game, uh, the Seahawks are what, six-and-a-half-point favorites? Is that what the line was? Six-and-a-half-point favorites. Um, when you look at the, the schedule that is waiting the Seahawks in the second half, um, this feels like a game where if they win it, okay, they won it. But if they lose it, oh boy. Right. Yeah, and, and especially because look, these are the and these are the in conference games that you know matter more at the end of the season. It's one thing to lose to you know Cincinnati and Baltimore AFC teams that are pretty good teams, anyways. That uh, you know those losses don't hurt you as much. 
And look, as, as discouraging as it was to lose in that fashion to Baltimore, you know, they're five and three, two of their losses have been to AFC teams. Um, that's not that bad. If you can win these next two games, you're seven and three and still, you know, two of your losses are to AFC teams. So, uh, but on the flip side of it is you, you just can't afford to lose this game. You, you certainly can't afford to lose both of these games with Washington and then the Rams next week, knowing that the gauntlet of the schedule arrives after that with the two games against San Francisco in a three-week stretch uh, and then a game against um, Dallas and Philadelphia, which, you know, if, if Baltimore isn't the best team in the NFL right now, then Philadelphia certainly is. And so, yeah, this is uh, – you don't really talk about must-win games in, what is it, mid-November, November 12th, but – this this kind of has the feel of a must-win game for them. Brady, this was great, man. Thanks for taking the time to do it. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the game on Sunday. We'll do this again next Friday. All right, fellas. Thank you. Good to talk with you. See you. See you, Brady. Too. Thanks, Brady. That's Brady Anderson, ESPN NFL insider, Seahawks insider, here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. So the Seahawks play the Commanders this week, and then they play the Rams down in L.A. next week, looking for revenge after that week one very disappointing loss to the Rams, and it sounds like Matt Stafford could be back for that Seattle game. Yeah, they almost got handed a real nice two-week set. Because you got to remember, in consecutive weeks, like they went up against really tough defenses, right? Like you know, sorry, not in consecutive weeks, but the, going from Browns to Ravens, and you look at the Ravens stats. Yeah, it was consecutive weeks. Was it okay? Yeah, I wasn't yeah. sure if there was yeah. one sandwiched in between. And you're talking about a Ravens defense that is tops in the NFL in sacks and you're talking about a Browns team that's in the top three as well and you're looking and you're like okay that's real real full-fledged pressure on Geno Smith then you go into this weekend and they get a real gift because Washington has sort of systematically picked apart its defensive line trading guys like Montez Sweat and mm-hmm. trade Ch- Chase Young most notably to the 49ers so you get a, a little bit of a breather if you're Geno like you're not gonna have as much QB pressure because they just don't have the same level of talent that they once had. And then you get into that Rams game and, you know, depending on whether Stafford's back or not, it makes a big difference as to whether that becomes a winnable game or not. Mm -hmm. Because if Stafford's out, that's got to be a win. You you have to be able to chalk that one up. Are the the Seahawks going to be your lock of the week? This week? No. Oh, okay. Teaser, though, it will be an NFC West team that might have a lock of the week. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back into the Vancouver Canucks and Edmonton Oilers story, though, because for those that are just joining us, uh, we spent the better part of the first half hour of the program talking about, one, the Vancouver Canucks 5-2 win over the Ottawa Senators in Ottawa last night. And then, two, in case you didn't stay up late, the Edmonton Oilers 3-2 loss in San Jose to the Sharks. I'll repeat that. The Edmonton Oilers lost to the San Jose Sharks. The San Jose Sharks are on a heater, folks. They've won two hockey games in a row. Going streaking. Their first two and only two wins of the season are in a row. And one of them comes against a team that many people picked to win the Stanley Cup ahead of last season. I I, I love looking at the standings now because it is it's almost unfathomable to think that the Canucks have a 16-point lead on the Edmonton Oilers in the standings. like Edmonton now is at the point where to turn this season around just to be a wild card team, Mm -hmm. which nobody saw them, everyone saw them at least the top three team in their division, they're going to need to play at a 105-point pace over their remaining, what is it, 70 games of the season because they played 12? Yeah. It's a tall order. Mm -hmm. You could say, do they have the talent to do it? 
Absolutely. They have the best hockey player in the world. And I don't know where you rank Dreisaitl in that, but he's maybe top five. He's really good. However, right now, the question you have to ask is, what gives you the thought that this team, as currently constructed and currently going, can play at a 105-point pace? Especially with McDavid not 100%. Like what, what, what is That's there the for you factor. to draw on? Yeah. What positives have happened mm-hmm. over those first games where you're like, well, that... You're just hoping that everything turns around. All you can all you do is sit there and say is, well, well, last year they were good. Last year they were good. Last year they were good. Before they were good. Yeah. I just, I'm having a hard time seeing it unless they fire the coach. And even then, there's no guarantee. But uh, they have to be thinking. They have to be looking at recent history and going, the Penguins underperformed with a lot of talent. They fired their coach. They bring in Mike Sullivan. They win back-to-back Stanley Cups. The Blues had a terrible start to the season. They fired their coach. They won the Stanley Cup, right? They also changed their goalie. Yes. Vegas has been through a number of coaches, despite all their success, and they win the Stanley Cup after they make a coaching change. Mm-hmm. Not midseason, but they made a coaching change, and they won the Stanley Cup, right? Sometimes you just you just need change. Right. And people will say, well, don't make change for the sake of change. I agree when it comes to like asset management, don't do anything crazy. But sometimes when it comes to a coach, you just you just need to change it up. You need to change up the routine, get out of whatever rut that you're on. Give yourself something to believe in, because when you change the coach and let's say you win a first game with that coach. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, well, you at least have something to believe in. Right now, the Oilers have no belief. And we're seeing with the Canucks what belief does for a team. They believe yeah. in the structure that they're playing. Uh, they believe right now, they might be believing that all the bounces are going to go their way and they're going to go into a game. And even if something bad happens, they can still win the game. Yeah, so the other number that they're trotting out in Edmonton right now is that we're we're firing all these pucks on net game after game after game, and we're not able to beat the opposition's goalies. And everyone wants to know, if your big guns aren't firing, like Drysdale and McDavid aren't right now, can you get some secondary scoring? And then you look at a team like Vancouver right now. And I'm going to say, found money, Phil DiGiuseppe is just the perfect fit that nobody ever would have assumed and nobody saw coming. This is a, he is me again. I want to reiterate that was a nice this. little pass he made to Miller. Well, not just the pass, but the space he opened yeah. up. He Did went he forward. Wasn't it space? the pass yeah. on the first opening goal to Besser? That was that too. Yeah, yeah, that too. I was yeah, talking yeah. about the one to Miller. Yeah. No, yeah. I know, but I was just saying, yeah. like the guy makes a cross seam pass to Besser. They score 15 seconds in. Mm-hmm. I, you, again, things need to break your way, in a lo- and it looks a lot of different ways when they do. Right? There's the obvious bounces on the ice, like ah, we got a lucky one here, bounced off a guy's ass in front there. Yeah. Then but, you get, but also to be fair, uh, they got to bounce against them when Petey put one in. And then you get breaks for you at a higher level, which is found money, unexpected pairings, unexpected results. Di Giuseppe is playing. At a pace where he's on pace to score 41 points this year in 82 games and be a contributing member to one of the best offensive lines in hockey, and he's doing it for $775,000. Best two-way lines. It's unbelievable. I, and again, you go to last night, uh, Mikheyev, obvious concerns going into the season about what his game was going to look like after a pretty serious knee injury. Mikheyev pops two. He's up to a point a game player. He's got eight and nine games. I was really impressed with Kuzmenko's game last night. Here's another guy. He made a couple key plays uh, on the first goal 
Was it the first goal? Which one was it? Second goal. Was Se- it? Second goal. Yeah. He broke up the, the Sens breakout. And on, uh, actually, they were both the Mikheyev goals. And on the second Mikheyev goal, um, made a nice play. Won a battle in the neutral zone. And Petey was able to pick up the puck after that. If Kuzmenko isn't going to score goals at the same clip as last year, by the way, that's like a, right now he's got three in 13 games. Like he's not scoring at the same clip. The question is going to be how else is he going to contribute? And it's like mm-hmm. in ways that you saw. Now, no one's going to complain about his production. Kuzmenko has 12 points in 13 games. He's almost the, point goal, per game. the goals aren't there. He's only got three, but who cares? And who cares if he's doing other things out there? The point is, is that they are getting contributions up and down this lineup. Like, we haven't talked. Philip Hronik has an eight-game assist. He's got an assist in eight straight games. He has 14 points in 13 games. He's among the leaders in NHL defensemen scoring. Because he has zero goals. Yeah, yeah. He's the he's the inverse Cy Young. It's all assists. He's not selfish. Before no. we go to break, Ruff, I want to go back to your original point when we started this discussion about sometimes you just need to make a change behind the bench for the sake of change. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Paul Maurice's uh, interview when he resigned from the Jets? He said almost the exact same thing verbatim, that he just, sometimes you just need a new voice in the room. It's not a slight against anybody. Yeah. It's not a shot at anyone. It's, it's just, just a change. You just lose the room sometimes, yeah. and you need a change. You just need a new voice to come in. And, and, I mean, even, and even if it's not on the old coach, maybe the new guy brings something. Br- just, brings just a new something. set of eyes. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it's tactical. Maybe it's psychological. They just need some sort of change. Two-time caller Brian texts in. Ask us anything, and it is Ask Us Anything Friday, and we can we have an open segment coming yes, up. So yes. let's do some Ask Us Anything. Let's get them into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Is there a noticeable change in fan engagement from your perspective? Yes, 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 hundred percent. Podcast downloads are way up. Business is better, easier to sell to advertisers. Guys, it's way better for us when the Canucks are doing well. Mm-hmm. I just look, at way the Dun- better. just look at the Dunbar Lumber text message in basket this morning. Yeah. Before we even got on the air, it was loaded with texts. People texting in before 6 a.m. Who does that? Why would you do that? It's because they're fired up about the Canucks, mm-hmm. and it's a good thing. Uh, so get your Ask Us Anythings into the Dunbar Lumber text line at 650-650. Uh, we'll read some on the other side of the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.